The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Big welcome to anybody who's here for the first time today. Welcome to the community. And uh, Mary is here somewhere as our one of our program hosts. If you have any questions, you can check in with Mary at the end. Or It's always nice if you have a moment to come up front and say hello so I get a chance to meet you as well. And I thought it would be nice today to uh, look at this intersection between this practice we have of being aware, continuity of mindful awareness. Mindfulness has become a very common word these days. But uh, like most things in our life, most new habits that we develop or practices that we undertake, they tend, these practices, these ways of being tend to get, I don't know if contaminated is the right word, but they are affected by the usual habits in our mind. And so a lot of what we do in our practice of learning how to be more aware is we have to have this real persistence of reflecting on the awareness itself. And it's a sort of ongoing purification because our impatience gets folded into our practice of being mindfully aware, our judgment, our complacency, all kinds of habits that are already there in the mind. They just get infused. I'm sure you've noticed this, whether... You know, you had a strong resolve to change some relationship in your life, like with a partner or with one of your kids, or you had a strong resolve to sort of change your relationship to your body. I'm going to change my diet or I'm going to start to exercise. I'm going to cut down on my use of alcohol. Or, but, And it might be that initially the resolve came from a really balanced and wise place but then operationalizing, instituting the resolve, you know, it tends to start to look like a lot of the other things that we've initiated in our life. Coming out of maybe shame or self-hatred or wanting to be seen in a particular way by our friends. And the, the corruption, you know, these initial wholesome intentions, resolves, But then when they get contaminated with greed, anger, and delusion, well, then they don't have the staying power to really move the life in a a direction that is healing and good. So right from the beginning, you know, in the Buddhist teachings, he makes a big deal out of what we call right view. Right sort of a funny word, wholesome view, wise view. This word sama has been being translated as right for a while, but it always sort of makes us think, okay, that's the right way and this is the wrong way. But it's right, you know, there's another sense of the word right, like the way that has integrity, the way that has a, comes from a place of wholeness instead of separation or fragmentation. So this wise view is always like everything we do, more than like, what we did when we got up this morning or what we're going to do when we relate to somebody at home later today, more than actually what we say or what we do, 
the Buddha is suggesting that what matters more than that is what view, what understanding that action, those words come out of. That's where we want to put our emphasis. And it, this can sound like, oh, you mean we got to get our philosophical act together and really know what the ultimate truth is and then come at life with that view. But it's much more basic than that. This way that we can begin to shift view is really simple. Like when our mind is a little irritated, a little harsh, a little impatient, right? Well, that, that way of being, that way of relating, that's a particular view. You know, that, for example, just to put words to it, life requires my hardness. Like to make something happen, I've got to be sort of tough. Or I have to be mean, or I'm going to be walked all over. So that's a particular view, you know, dog-eat-dog view of the world. Some of you have dogs, you don't like that phrase. (laughs) (laughs) Wynn and I were having a peaceful moment sitting on our deck at our house, not too far from here, observing our cat. And then the neighbor cat comes, you know, and we we thought, oh, let's just see how they get along. (laughs) 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 You know, about... 60 seconds later, our cat is bleeding profusely <laughs> all over the carpets and from the fight that it had with this cat in our yard. So, you know, this is, we're not that different than cats and dogs, and we're animals too. And uh, so we're, we need to have a lot of respect about the kind of cultural conditioning we have around tribe, clan, people who look like us, act like us, and uh, around power, around gender and sex, and all these things that we sort of use basically to push power around, whether we tend to have less or tend to have more power. It's this very rough dynamic. Now, it isn't about some shift of view is going to change the facts, the way that power gets pushed around in our world, in our hearts, in our families. But it's really about uh, understanding it matters how we relate to that. How do we relate to that? We can either use the sort of rough nature of the world to rationalize being rough and being hateful and being fearful and being controlling and judging and, you know, all of those ways. I mean, maybe you're not actually going around and pushing people or insulting people. But we, you know, each of us, we have our ways of acting out or sometimes people call it the reptilian brain, right? The sort of part of our genetic and cultural conditioning that's rough and mean and, and sort of about being at the top of the heap in one way or another. Or we can use the roughness in life as a means to crack open the heart, tenderize the heart, soften the heart. But remember, this is not the same as being complacent or being weak or you know, letting people take advantage of us. 
It's just understanding. It's, it's not even like we're trying to be soft or we're trying to be kind. All we're doing is having an authentic, honest relationship with the way it is and letting it have its effect on the mind and heart. So when we are observant, when we are sensitive, when we're not shading the truth, covering up the truth, unconsciously acting out our biases, when we're aware of how we tend to look at things so that we're not confused by those habits or less confused by those habits, then what happens is life tenderizes the heart. It sort of, not always very pleasantly, it uh, beats up, knocks over any sort of arrogance, any sort of certainty, any sort of sense that I know. I mean, what we end up realizing is I know that I don't know more and more. And it really um, encourages, strengthens this refuge of, well, I'm willing to be open. Because I don't know, because I'm not certain, because I care, I'm willing to be open. I'm willing to see clearly. I'm willing to feel what I feel because it's the only hope we have of responding a little bit more appropriately in all the moments of our life. Not coming at these moments from a place of certainty, but from a place of being open and humble and normalizing the experience of being uncertain, normalizing the experience of not knowing. And then we start to learn how to listen and how to see what we haven't seen before things start to come online about the way it is. And more and more our heart is moved. But of course, we don't like it, or at least the sort of surface level of conditioning in our minds, we don't like it because even though it's a more authentic and a more creative and nimble, responsive way of being in our lives, The absence of certainty is scary. The absence of imagining that we know is scary for us because we've really, unfortunately, I think, we've become dependent on the thoughts, the ideas that we imagine that we're certain about. I mean, even in the safety of your intimate relationships with a partner, with a friend, just experiment being allowing whatever certainty you have about the person about the relationship just allowing it to cease because remember all those ideas they're being renewed moment by moment by moment it's not like i have this idea of my partner my spouse and then it's there in the mind forever i have to renew it moment by moment put her in that box. Oh, that's who she is. That's how she is. That's how we are together. And so dropping it is actually more simple than we might think. It's just more a matter of not constantly renewing it and getting identified with it. This space of being open and undefended and uncertain and vulnerable It's just an instant away because everything is immediately always 
falling away. So can we let that happen without the habitual response of reestablishing it? So with this in mind, it's really useful, I think, in terms of this shift of view. And you could, there's many ways to talk about this basic shift of view. But one of the ways the Buddha often talked about it is this, um, this, you know, as we practice this deepening suspicion around any fixed view that we have. Uh, where we, over time, developing our mindful awareness practice, this greater sensitivity, we just become more quickly aware of whenever the mind is attached or holding to a fixed view. Now remember, that doesn't mean that the other view is correct. Just because we catch yourself being fixed to a view, it doesn't mean that on a relative sense the view is incorrect. All it's suggesting, the sort of our practice and the fruit of our practice, all that it's going to suggest is, honey, do you need to be fixed on this view? Does the heart-mind need to be holding tight? Do you need to be pretending you're certain? Right? So it's not that all of a sudden we can't have beliefs or views or ideas, concepts in the mind. It just means we're beginning to shift how the mind relates to view and concept and ideas and beliefs. It's just a much lighter, nimble, less fixed relationship. And so that way we don't actually know who we are. Like, because often this is how we define ourselves. You know, I'm the person who thinks this. I'm the person who's concluded this about life, about me, about what's right, what's wrong. But then, you know, as we practice more and more, it's like we can have a conversation and think, and say to the people we're talking with, you know, this is how I'm seeing it right now. You know, or th- right now this is upsetting me. This doesn't seem fair. But we're, we're staying open. Instead of like defending the view we have, everything we see and hear, every moment of our life is informing how we're constructing meaning. We're not trying to defend the meaning we've constructed in the past. We're really interested in the meaning that the mind is constructing, the thoughts the mind is thinking, that that come from this place of being open and sensitive and humble. Because humble is probably the most important ingredient because if we don't have that sense of humility, then we're going to assume that the old ways of thinking, the old ways of creating meaning, are more than what they are. They're just old ways of that the mind created meaning. And it will be hard to construct meaning about what's going on in this moment, what this relationship is about, what's important, what's skillful, what's unskillful. It w- will be hard for that to be fresh and integrated with the way it is, coming out of the wholeness or more of the wholeness of the present moment. And this is something we can do in our lives where we can, in a sense, mine different interactions you've had, you know, where you've had a really, in hindsight, what felt like a really skillful interaction, maybe at work where something was complicated, 
charged, and you feel like you did a pretty good job navigating that difficulty. And then you might look back, and you might see that what allowed that relative skillfulness was that you were there without a fixed view, without taking sides even, but not afraid to take care of yourself, not afraid to take care of what's important, but not entering it with this idea that I have to hold to something. It's really having a lot of confidence in what, in sort of intelligence, like the mind's capacity to be connected to what's going on and in a sense to read it, to feel it, and, to, and for something to come out of that, let's try this, let me say this, let me hold back and not say anything for a while. Let me express, you know, in terms of my body language, let me express myself this way. Let me express myself this way. You know, let me stand up, let me sit down. So that our words, our actions, and even our thoughts aren't coming from a pre-programmed place, but from this really scary, uncertain place of, well, let me just, instead of let me figure out what to say, let me really connect. Let me really show up here. Let me use everything at my disposal. There's a lot at our disposal. The sort of rational thinking mind is one thing, but there's a lot of other things at our disposal, like what what does it feel like emotionally right now? What's moving in me as emotion? What do I sense is moving, besides what each person is saying, what do I sense is moving in them? Right? Because one of the things about being an emotional being is we're, we're also, like because we know to some degree our own emotions, other people emoting, there's going to be a sympathetic vibration so we can sympathetically sense where other people are at. Not perfectly, of course. All of this is relevant. Just as the past is relevant, sort of an honest, a more honest view of the past, not just our interpretation, but we, you know, start to ask people, like, how did that look to you? I mentioned last week, I think, this soft power of mindfulness. Remember, I read that section from the Tao Te Ching about how the hardest or how the softest thing in the world is stronger than the soft than the how the softest thing in the world is harder or stronger than the hardest thing in the world. Right? And this is the thing that we need to learn about the practice, this basic practice of the Buddha, where he teaches about no fixed views. He teaches about this continuity of awareness. Open, kind non-judging, non-forceful awareness. Like even when we hear teachings around investigation, we need to investigate what's happening. Investigation is much more the soft power of letting the conditions in the present moment reveal themselves. Because if I'm trying to see, trying to be clear, the trying itself gets in the way of seeing clearly. So even a moment of mindfulness and especially the continuity of mindfulness, 
is really a step outside of, stepping outside of certainty. You might have even noticed this. Just the, this is not like that unusual of a meditation experience when we're being mindful of the body, as I suggested in the guided sit today, and we're getting some continuity. There's a little war between the ideas my mind has about what the experience of the body is like and the actual reality of opening to sensation, the moment-to-moment experience of sensation. And <coughs> there's like uh, this battle of allegiance. Is the mind, the knowing mind, more in allegiance with the past ideas, the habit I have of how I see the body, how the meaning I give to the body, versus being in allegiance to the moment-to-moment knowing of sensation. Because to the degree we learn to trust the moment-to-moment knowing of sensation, this other idea, the body, gets blown up. It really gets overturned because the actual experience, direct, immediate experience of sensation, doesn't really line up with the idea we have of the body. People come to their teachers, you know, this has happened countless times, you know. Like, I was aware of the body, but, you know, there was like nothing there. It was like open space. Because we think the body is solid and hard and heavy. We think the body is like what we've been told and what we've told ourselves millions of times. But the actual experience of the body the direct and immediate knowing of sensation, it doesn't have shape, doesn't have location. These are concepts. These are part of the story. Even what we say, you know, we use the word weight or pressure or contact, you know, the experience of touch. Even that experience is mostly mediated by our thought of weight and pressure and contact. The actual experience of contact, pressure, weight, is much different than the idea of weight and pressure and contact or coolness and warmth. So if we don't even know the experience of our body, if our habit of how we make meaning, how we construct meaning about what the body is, is so different than the direct, immediate experience of the body, how much more so than the meaning that we construct about the world, about our relationships, about right and wrong, about justice. So this is the thing I often joke, you from, many of you have heard me, that we should have a big sign near the front to the building like we have now with this big welcome sign and expressing our aspiration to be a more welcoming community. But we should ha- also have a warning sign, nice neon warning. <laughs> Danger, right? Once you begin this path, right? Once you get the virus, the interest in being more awake, more present, it will take you away slowly, gradually, usually, but sometimes in big steps that are a little bit earth-shaking, right? It, It will take you away from your fixed ideas, your fixed views of things, and move you more and more into this open space of not knowing. 
or seeing the relative nature of any thoughts you have about things. And this place of being open or aware or awake, whatever you want to call it, is actually very, very enlivening. It's like when we're dependent, when the mind is dependent on its ideas of things, then the mind is quite literally imprisoned in a way that we tend not to notice unless we develop our practice is very constricting. And then because our life is so tight and constricted and imprisoned in our fixed ideas about things, we become more and more dependent on exciting sense experiences to make us feel alive. So we need I was at a friend's house last night and we watched uh, the third episode of The Hobbit, part of it. It was like really long. But you know, it's like, I don't know if some of you saw that movie, but it's like huge battle scenes. I mean, just like amazingly graphic war scenes in, in the film. And you know, a lot of other things like this amazing ocean of gold coins and deep in the mountain at the, what are they called, the creatures that... Mind the mountains. Dwarves. Is that what they're called? Yeah. Anyway, you get the story. So it's like uh, the drama that we're drawn to in fancy cars and amazing electronic devices and you know interesting restaurants. And we become more in need of these dramatic things because we're living in a more and more constricted way with our fixed views. So even though we should have a warning sign about how we're going to, once we get interested and follow the scent of being more and more awake, more and more open, we're leaving behind what we had been taking to be safety, right? our fixed ideas about things. We're moving it to this more open, unfixed space. (coughs) But we start to feel more and more alive. That's why once you get the virus, you'll never turn back. That's why you have to decide before you walk in and start practicing, right? Or pick up your first book or hear your first talk on the internet or whatever it is that, you know, it's already too late for most of you (laughs) because we're already, we got the bug. It's like we do, even if we're not consciously aware of it, we do feel more awake, more alive when we're not in our fixed ideas, caught, identified with our fixed ideas. Even like, oh, it's Minnesota summer when you walk outside. But that's not the experience of sensing that experience of stepping outside. It doesn't need a label. It doesn't need a concept for you to know that it's July in Minnesota. You don't need the words July in Minnesota to be enlivened, to be intimate, to be awakened by that experience the same when we're connecting with another human being. I don't need to know that it's Morris in front of me or what I think or who I think Morris is. In fact, it's so much more scary and enlivening to not be caught in our ideas when we're connecting with another human being. I play with this a lot with my spouse. I recommend that you do the same with your friends and family and partners to just, it's scary and it feels a little self-conscious initially, but to let meaning drop away. 
And you could just start, you know, that's how we do in our practice. We start when we're alone, when we're safe, like either sitting in a group, but in our own experience, you know, not interacting as a social being, like when we're formally practicing. But just, and you know, this is what people always want to share with their good, good friends, is like these moments when that conceptual prison dropped away for a few seconds and the light through the leaves was so amazing. Right? But now we're back telling herself another story about the experience. But the experience itself wasn't the light through the leaves, it was the absence of the prison for a few seconds. You know, or people, they do more extreme physical activities. And they, because they have to pay attention to whatever they're doing, rock climbing or whatever it might be, the, the mind drops its overlay and they have a little freedom from that. Or you're with your dog, you know, and you're just playing and, and that sort of fixed ideas drop away for a second or two. And you think it's that your dogs like really love you. You tell yourself a story, but it wasn't, it isn't that your dogs are more special than other dogs. Right? That's what we always think. Or that your partner is more special than other people even. It's that you, there was a moment where your mind wasn't being oppressed, imprisoned by thought. And the last point I want to make before opening it up and going back to the beginning, because it can seem like a big step, but actually the Buddha taught that one of the easiest ways, the most effective ways to do this shift, this paradigm shift from a mind imprisoned by its ideas or mind stepping out is with the experience of love or kindness, compassion, appreciation, even equanimity. Not, of course, the idea of love, but an experience of love, an experience of compassion, an experience of appreciation, joyful appreciation, seeing the beauty, seeing the goodness, right? Because already our mind, most human beings, not everybody, because some people have had pretty traumatic and oppressive lives, but most human beings already have some confidence in that experience. Like when there's just a natural movement of love and we don't initially feel like we have to contain it or name it or, right, because it's so beautiful and trustworthy, the experience of love, we're okay not fixing on a view, not getting attached to an idea. And it can be amazing. I often share this moment because it was so ordinary, but way back when in the 80s, I taught school in uh, the Berkeley, Oakland area. And uh, I left. I was going to leave to be with a teacher in New York City that I wanted to practice with. And so I left this job that I loved and they had a little going away party and the kindergarten teacher who, you know, I knew pretty well, but we weren't like social. She just gave me a hug, you know, goodbye hug. And I just, I can remember it because for whatever reason, maybe it happened for her too, but the trust I had in her goodness was on the surface and I just received the hug and responded, you know, by hugging her. It's like a three, five second thing, right? It wasn't, didn't look unusual to anybody watching. But it was really amazing to not 
be dependent on like, oh yeah, I'm hugging this person, or you know, or this is who this person is, or sh- and even the idea that this person is a really good person, even that idea wasn't mediating the experience. So I could tell my story of myself a story that would somehow she had a lot of love that flowed into me, and uh, she's probably a saint in disguise, and I'll put a picture of her on my altar, or we can, you know, this is more of a Buddhist thing to do. We can be reflective. Well, what was there in that moment? What, don't tell myself another story about it because even with hindsight, we can be honestly aware what was there, what wasn't there. Right? It's often more about what wasn't there. That meaning-making part of the mind wasn't neurotically operating in those or the mind wasn't getting identified with any meaning-making that was going on. And so there was a very natural but miraculous moment of, of mindfulness, or just, you could call it being open, or the mind being not fixed. It seems easy from an intellectual point of view to go right to a non-fixed mind. Like once we get like being attached to views is maybe not so good, but it isn't easy to go directly to a state of not being fixed, not being attached. And so the, the way you can start to get a taste of it is to start noticing moments of love, of appreciation, of natural compassion. Because often in those moments, the shell of fixed ideas falls away momentarily for seconds at a time, right? So not for like, hours, but for just a moment. And even though like you might be with someone who's really hurting, so if it's a moment of compassion, it doesn't mean it's a pleasant moment actually. It just means there's a lot of life energy moving in an unrestricted, without resistance, that we feel really alive. People, you hear this with journalists who've been in the war zones or soldiers, you know that the kind of connections, the kind of relationships, they can't recreate it at home. But it isn't that they need the violence. It's just that the intensity of the experience created moments where they entered into the present moment. We need to have a lot of humility about our experience of the present moment. Because if we interviewed everybody in Minneapolis, almost everybody would say, yeah, I'm intimate with the present moment. But that's just not the case, right? We're living through a very thick filter of our meaning-making mind. And that's why we feel oppressed. I mean, there's many reasons people feel oppressed, but in an existential sense, the reason we feel oppressed, often, like I said, needy of something exciting. I got a little desperate as I've begun to run out of my green tea that gets shipped from Japan. It's like, because I need that like fix to sort of make, make me feel alive. I can get up in the morning when knowing I have my green tea there. <laughs> so we don't have much time, but there's enough time to hear from a couple folks in the community what you, you've been learning in your own life, questions you might have about what I've said. Remember to point the mic right at your mouth like this. Well, this was a good talk for me. 
because um, my boyfriend, my significant other, and I had a talk yesterday, and I'm more of a cat, and he's more of a dog. He needs a lot of attention, and I don't give him enough attention. And he was telling me, you know, how I was falling short in that area. So today, um, I wanted to come to Common Ground, and I wanted 45 minutes to get ready. Well, he wanted attention, and since we had that talk yesterday. Okay, so I was with him, but I felt very resentful rushing to get here the whole way, halfway through my sit. I kept feeling the anger and the resentment um, and just going into the sensations, but I would pop out like, this isn't fair that I have to be the one to compromise. But when you finally said about the fixed view, I thought, I'm holding on to a fixed view here, that it's not fair that I'm the one who always has to compromise, because that's probably not right anyways. Um, <laughs> but I was able to go into that spaciousness where there was no nothing, and um, it just dissolved it all. But that's also kind of a scary spot, because fixed views... Um, what is the word for that? There's some control with a fixed view. There's no control when you're going into nothing. Yeah, thanks, Helen. Somebody else, yeah, please. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. I was going to try and come up with a really good question, but you make it really hard because you cover so much and the vastness is so amazing and just really amazing. I, I can't come up with a question, but thank you for, for covering. I go a really long time before, unless I listen to a podcast or something, that someone even says one sentence of what you have just said. So to hear all that has just been really amazing. Uh, you bring up the cats and dogs, and last night's dream was all about dogs. Oh, um, I, had, I, I became an owner of a dog, and I fed it in front of a mirror, and I took care of it, and it was my family. And you talk about greed, anger, and delusion. And one question I came into this meditation was, I know in, in Tibetan Buddhism, it suggests, you know, leaving your family. And one thing we all have in common is that we've all been born through the vagina of a woman from a man and a, a woman created. That's what we all have in common, except for a few who have carried another woman's and man's baby. That's fairly rare. And my inspiration out of this also was... Um, because greed, anger, and delusion seem to have been greatly um, in a great amount when I was growing up because I was with this family, and it's always a cyclical. Either I'm being greedy, angry, or delusional, or they are being greedy. It's just family, though. So I have left um, family, I you know, and traveled, and I'm right now really inspired to go a little farther in my journey in my life right now, like Himalayas, and, and, and be free of that. Um, a good movie to see that has a lot of animation, or that beautiful animation work, is The New Beauty and the Beast. They spent months on this one scene, so I, I encourage you to see that. Um, I also, last Saturday, I went 23 miles in... Um, I haven't run in 10 years more than five miles, but I've done 100 
so it didn't really affect me, but I noticed a lot of people had a new view of me, which was interesting. And it, and it was very freeing, because I, I enjoy being out in the woods. And if I wasn't raised out in the country when I was a child, it would have been, well, it did become suicidal at one point, but when I was eight. But the amount of family that I have is just... Um, is a lot, a lot, a close family coming in here. You're right. The warning, <laughs> there should be a good warning. I don't have a good question, but thank you. Oh, you're welcome. And this is a good time for us to just appreciate the generations of women and men and other folks who heard the teachings, just like we're hearing the teachings. And in their complicated, busy lives, they developed their practice, gained some real wisdom and compassion modeled it in their life, shared it with those around them. And one generation after another, we're the lucky recipients now of these wise teachings. So it's useful to be grateful and to be inspired to practice as best we can, knowing that we have complicated lives. But why not aspire to what is most useful Why don't we aspire to being folks who can plant seeds of non-suffering, of real peace, real love and freedom in our hearts, in our world. So may this be so. And thanks everyone for coming today. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.